Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf, and I am here in New York City, where it is about a degree outside. It is cold. It is nasty. I wish I were someplace else. Um, But I'm not. But you know what? There are people who are on this episode who are someplace else. For example, we have in Washington, D.C., Ed Luce, who is in the solarium of Luce Manor, uh, undoubtedly surrounded by palm (laughs) um, sun lamps and a tropical environment full of probably parrots. Is that correct? Uh, I'm just plucking, plucking a grape from my trellis. As yeah. we speak. <laughs> it's quite the life at Loose Leads. Um, I hope someday to uh, to for everybody to see it because he is kind of the Robin Leach of foreign policy. Um, <laughs> uh, also in London, oh, excuse me, also in Washington, D.C., we have Joe Cirincioni of the Plowshare Fund. Uh, and I hope you are someplace warm, Joe. I am. The sun is streaming in my home in Tacoma Park, Maryland, right outside Washington. Uh, well, that sounds nice. And uh, lounging about, waited on by butlers <laughs> and maids in the lobby of the Sequoia Hotel, um, where Oscar Wilde once composed scandalous poetry, is, of course, Corey Shockey. <laughs> uh, uh, not too far from where Gilbert and Sullivan launched all of their... Uh, uh, shows at the Savoy Theater, the Savoyards. Um, I'm sure you're a Savoyard, are you not, Corey? <laughs> I can't sing and I can't dance, so I had to become a scholar. Well, you are the very model of a modern major <laughs> scholar, Corey. Um, and somebody out there probably knows what that is a reference to. Uh, so let's begin with a very serious matter. Uh, It's come out this week that President Trump uh, has posted photos on Facebook and Instagram that have altered his body so that he looks thinner and his hands look big. (laughs) Is that right? No. Yes. (laughs) Uh, According to Gizmodo, and that's probably undoubtedly true, uh, which of the things surprises you more, the thinner body or the fact that he makes his hands look larger? Well, um, I, I was I was thinking you're going to say his tie cropped short. We get we start we start with something um, safe. Um, I, I'm never hesitant to comment on all manner of subjects, but you know whether his body is thinner or his hands are, hands are smaller is is not something I feel great confidence in in, in di- discussing. Um, well, I just you know I just think it's interesting that the president would. Would do David, a- come on. The the person in this group for whom this pitch is in the wheelhouse is actually you. Me? Because yes. I have small hands? 
because you know, because <laughs> you will go on a comic savage riff that all of us will take merriment at. No, I would certainly never do such a thing about our our president. Although I did go on a bit the other day about the fact that he's not just evil and corrupt and incompetent and and traitorous, but it, that he's also stupid. And I think you know maybe this speaks to that. You know, uh, you know we we you know we, you don't say such things in political debate. But when you listen to him about the wall, you know, and he said, "Well, I've got a deal for you." You know this really bad thing I did a while back about pulling away DACA? Well, I'll suspend the bad thing I was doing temporarily if you give me this permanent wall. How's that for a good deal? And you got to think, only an idiot would think that people would not see through this. Just like only an idiot would not think that people would say, you know, his hands are actually much smaller than that. Um, and it does matter. You know, it matters that the president doesn't read doesn't think, thinks he's smarter than the experts around him. You know, dumb, dumb matters, doesn't it, guys? I mean, or am I, you know, is my, am I, are my standards just too high? <laughs> so, Ed, Joe, didn't he just prove me right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He actually weighed himself in a bit because I'm actually looking at these photos right now on Gizmodo, and it's actually stunning. Um, yes, he he he's altered his photos. You know, I think somebody a long time ago convinced him that a long tie made him look thinner, but apparently not thin enough because his photo makes him look younger and trimmer and. It's unmistakable his fingers are longer in the altered <laughs> photo, which is very, very weird. Well, yeah, I don't know if any of you are old enough to remember. I actually do know, but I'm being polite. Uh, I don't know if any of you are old enough to remember Spy Magazine, um, uh, where my sister once worked as an intern. Um, I loved Spy Magazine, and they always called him a short-fingered vulgarian. Exactly. That's just what I was getting at. <laughs> Um, I'm sorry, David, I did not mean to steal your punchline. No, no, that's it's quite all right. But I mean, Donald Trump was known to New Yorkers, you know, almost 30 years ago as a short-fingered vulgarian. And I suspect he's never gotten over it. Um, and it, it, you know, it haunts him to this day. Um, and now, you know, as we were talking about in the last episode, um, he all of a sudden has to start running against people for president again. Yes. Um, which, you know, I, I was thinking even as recently as a couple of weeks ago, like, oh, God, do we really have to start this again? But I got to admit, seeing, you know, Elizabeth Warren, Kristen Gillibrand, um, uh, 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 now Kamala Harris, um, uh, and others stepping up to run, is actually filling me with a little bit of hope because A, they will speak out against him, and B, it suggests that we're in the process that could bring an end to this national nightmare, even if Mueller falls short. And, you know, again, we talked about this a bit in the last episode, but, you know, there's also the, the sort of the character of these people. Kamala Harris 
is an aggressive attorney general. Uh, some people on the left in the Democratic Party think, uh, you know, her record in prosecuting crime was too tough. Personally, I think that's a big mm-hmm. advantage in this whole thing. Yes. She's part she's part Jamaican. She's part Indian. Her husband is Jewish. She's, you know, she's t- checks a lot of boxes. She's hardworking. She brought herself up through, uh, you know, th- all these tough systems. Uh, and, you know, you could you could offer these stories up of other people. And, Ed, you weren't there for the last episode's discussion of this thing. But, uh, and Corey and Joe, correct me if you, if you think I'm wrong, but it's actually quite an optimistic moment. It's, you know, you it, it could be the, be- if not the end, maybe the beginning of the end. It, it could well be. I mean, I think it is on balance likely to be, although, you know, who knows. Um, but we've what, got seven... We've got seven people in the race um, already, four of whom are women, um, which is extraordinary in, in and of itself. Not not just um, Kamala Harris's, um, you know, biography, which makes her the female Obama in a way, but the fact that the majority um, are female uh, in what is still the very early stages of a crowded race, and there are more women lined up to lined up to join, and of course, men, including um, a couple of septuagenarian men. Uh, I think that it's a very healthy thing to have such a big field. It's obviously a sign of what an extraordinarily tempting target Trump is, and how um, uh, how satisfying it would be to be the nominee who defeats Trump and replaces him. Um, you know, I've always had a rule of jobs in my own life is, is uh, follow an underperformer, always follow an <laughs> underperformer. And, uh, you know, Trump is nothing if not an underperformer. Um, so um, I think that's, um, in, in the main, an extremely healthy sign of vitality on the left and in the center of the Democratic Party. A couple of these a couple of these figures are more centrist. I think Beto O'Rourke is certainly going to be one of the centrist candidates. So he'd certainly be the main non-septuagenarian centrist, um, uh, assuming Joe Biden's going to run. Um, I worry a little bit that, you know, once you, once you get up to the scale of 20, 25 candidates and you have two debating stages, you get into circular firing squad situations and you know, you can get an awful lot of um, kicking the tires, which is exactly what primaries are for. But you can also get a lot of um, a lot of collateral damage. So um, it's going to be a brilliant, fascinating race race to watch. And, and, and overall, it's a very positive thing. Uh, yeah, and and, and uh, you know, one of the ones we didn't mention in the last episode, but I think is also an interesting uh, candidate is Julian Castro, who was the mm-hmm. Secretary of Housing and Urban Development under Obama, um, and uh, who represents, again, another rising voice in the American mix. You know, it's not just Democratic Party politics. It's a country that is changing demographically in a lot of um, important ways. Um, How do you think this government shutdown is going to affect, um, you know, politics and the political debate going forward. Is this just a momentary thing or are we in for a period of, of, of real dysfunction where little can get done? Because I do think if that's the case, among the few levers the president's going to have are going to be foreign policy levers and that's going to bring us to some 
uh, uh, additional questions. So um, let me ask you, Joe, first, and then we'll go to Corey. Well, well, it depends how the American people interpret this shutdown. And this. I think the majority are blaming Trump. I think the polls are clear. If, though, if people think that this is a sign of government dysfunction and that both sides are equal to blame, then uh, then it turns into an anti-government sentiment. But but I, I don't think that's the way it's going. I think I think Trump is losing this. We know from some private comments reported in the Post that he thinks it's this is this he's not winning and he's trying desperately to find a gamut a gambit that would win. I think also as as you see these services uh, shut down or diminish, it makes people realize what the government does for us. <clears throat> this is not, you know, an oppressive instrument. This is something that provides real services <clears throat> to the American people, and it'll make us hungry for a government that works again. So I think this could, could end up in two years having a very positive impact. Uh I agree. I agree with Joe on the point that it reminds people um, what the government does for them. Uh, and I think I see signs that, that you know, long TSA lines and the Coast Guard having to ship out to sea without their families mm -hmm. knowing when a paycheck's going to come. Uh, and... American diplomats having to work without being paid. I'm actually quite heartened by the number of my military and veteran colleagues who keep pointing out the unfairness that they are being paid, that active duty military is being paid, and their diplomatic counterparts and their other American government counterparts are not being paid. The other thing to keep in mind on this is that 30% of federal employees are veterans. Mm -hmm. uh, that, you know, we have long had a veteran preference for hiring in the federal government and, you know, for people who risk their lives for the country. And, um, and a full 30% of the federal government workforce are veterans. And President Trump has tried to argue that you know, he's been better to the military than everyone and veterans should support him. And this has the potential, I think uh, I already see signs, is damaging the president's appeal as somebody uh, who can reach those groups. Mm -hmm. The last thing I would say on this is that I think in general that people expect Congress to be foolish and reckless, um, but they expect expect the president to deal with a foolish, reckless Congress, and that the president is even more foolish and reckless than the Congress, I think it asymmetrically affects the president more than it affects Congress in public attitudes. So, Ed, you know, picking up on Corey's point, uh, there's an interesting article in the New York Times on today, Monday, when we we're recording this, uh, by uh, a couple of their reporters, including Maggie Haberman, called In Business and Governing Trump seeks victory in chaos. And essentially the point they're making is that Trump, you know, has done this before. In fact, almost every time he has a business, he does some crazy self-destructive um, grand move like this. Uh, and and time after time, it ends in bankruptcy, humiliation, uh, and 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 near disaster. And this is Again, it's it's you know like being close to Russians, like dealing with mobsters, like being corrupt, like um, you know 
sexual harassment, like being vulgar, etc. This is just part of the character of how this man works. Um, it's just that the consequences are, are are very different for a president, something we've we've never seen before. Uh, and it does suggest that if that's the case, uh, and nobody on the Republican side seems willing to stop him, in fact, Mitch McConnell seems willing to play along with this for reasons I don't fully understand. Um, this could go on for some time or in other forms. I fully expect to be one of the very interesting um, um, nuggets in that New York Times piece was over the Trump Tower in Chicago, where he you know, had a $40 million loan from Deutsche Bank. He then reneged on the loan. Um, Deutsche Bank tried to call it in, and he then countersued um, and saying that this is because of the 08 financial crisis, which Deutsche Bank partially caused, and therefore they are to blame for my inability to service this loan. And eventually they settled by forgiving it. Um, I think he's mm. had enough of that experience um, with banks, you know, the old saw about, you know, if, if you owe the banks $100, you're screwed, and if you owe a million, they'll take you out to lunch. Um, he's managed to roll banks so often and restructure so often and wriggle out of bankruptcy so frequently, most most um, prominently of all um, with the casinos when his father bailed him out, um, that he thinks this is how deals are done and how the world works. And of course, you know, he's now in a completely unrelated world um, where a democratic controlled house is not a bank and the White House is not a casino in Atlantic City, and Nancy Pelosi is not some gray suit, you know, who's who's going to restructure debt. She has got him in a corner. Uh, I don't think he knows what to do. Um, so it's really anybody's guess at this point. Normally I have an instinct, sometimes they prove wrong, but normally I have a fairly clear instinct and perhaps judgment as to where a political situation is going to evolve. This one, you know, it, it could, he could declare fake victory and cave, you know, before January the 29th, because he really does want to give a, a, a State of the Union televised address. Um, or he could keep this going for weeks and weeks and weeks. And I've got no, I've got no strong instinct on which I suspect the Republicans there'll be more Republicans rebelling the more the more time it goes on, mm -hmm. partic particularly in states, you know, where there are more furloughed workers, particularly, um, you know, um, uh, in states where Republicans are running for re-election in 2020 as well. But I think it's going to take quite a long time for that kind of pressure to be felt. And I've no... Mm -hmm. I've no faith that Trump is going to uh, is going to fold unless it is. Uh, well, you know, if that is the case and the situation weakens and weakens for the president, he doesn't have a whole lot of cards to play, but he is going to be more and more engaged uh, both in the issue of uh, running in 2020 and maintaining his political. Uh, yes, go on. I do. I just want to disagree with Ed just a bit or or, or more precisely have a prediction. You know, Ed's absolutely right that this creation of chaos has worked for him in this path, you know, that, and that he firmly believes that like a, you know, virtual particles springing into existence from the quantum void, that nothing can can help 
give him new value in negotiation, can strengthen his hand. But Ed's right, this is not the same. It doesn't work this way. And the more you have nothing, the more you have no, no government, the more destruction spreads across the country. Let me just give you two quick examples. The National Transportation Safety Board has not been able to function since the shutdown or shortly after. There have been 75 serious accidents in this country since the shutdown began without investigation. That has real consequences in every locale where those accidents have occurred. A lot of the benefits, a lot of the government workers who are out of work are not here in Washington. They're out in deep red states like North Dakota and South Dakota and Wyoming and, and Montana, where they're doing interior uh, work, where they work at parks, where they work at veterans facilities, and they're not getting paid. By the time people hear this podcast, the the second paycheck for government workers will be missed. And that means that those communities where those workers are, are, are feeling intense pain from the restaurants, from the shops, from the grocery stores, from the service providers. I don't think Trump can keep this going forever. I'm gonna take a prediction. Mid-February, I think mid-February, that is a third missed paycheck. I think this is there's a limit to how long you can shut the government down. I think Trump's gonna have to fold because the Democrats have the, the stronger hand. Open the government and then we'll negotiate. Yeah, it's interesting because the uh, number of people at TSA, for example, who are calling in sick is now just past 10%. It's usually about 3.1%. So what you've got is a lot of people who can't actually show up for their jobs if they're not getting paid. They have to take other jobs or they can't pay to get there. Uh, and this, this crisis clearly is going to compound itself um, because, you know, half the people in the U.S. don't have $400 in the bank account. Uh, so when you get past a paycheck, uh, you're, 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 you're into, you know, zone of existential choices. Uh, you know, how do I put food on the table? How do I pay for gas for the car? How do I pay the mortgage? Absolutely. 60% uh, of the country, 60% of the people cannot deal with an unexpected expense of over $1,000. Anything, oh, and that amount of money requires them to put it on a credit card, borrow from family, or go, you know, go into for other kinds of debt. That is an amazing statistic. So you understand the kind of pain that people are feeling now. Yeah. So, you know, the question becomes compromised like this. This is also going to build a lot of bad will. Uh, we're also going to get into investigations competing, I think, in the House and Senate, because the House is going to be conducting investigations into. Trump, and I think that's going to lead some characters in the Senate, like Lindsey Graham, who has completely lost his friggin' mind, uh, to to you know go uh, and you know open up the uh, I don't know Whitewater investigation again, or uh, you know Obama's <laughs> birth certificate, or some other kind of uh, insanity, you know Benghazi maybe, uh, because they want to you know sort of offset this. And we, we could enter into a period, and this is really hard to imagine, of greater ill will than we have seen in a long, long time, uh, and potentially a constitutional crisis. This leaves the president a few cards to play uh, if he wants to appear presidential. Almost all of those have to do with uh, international policy. We talked about one in the first episode of this week, which had to do with North Korea. Let's talk about uh, the, the Middle East briefly, and then I'd like to talk about a couple of others. Uh, Corey, one of the things that the president did, I think in a gesture to distract, was he had a phone conversation with Erdogan and said, yeah, I'm getting out of Syria. And then his secretary of defense quit. And then 
uh, his uh, ISIS envoy quit. And he then, you know, has sort of had to backtrack from that. But recently we've had an article by uh, Brett McGurk, who was the ISIS envoy, saying that not only have we not defeated ISIS, but the president is now opening the door to its return. Uh, and I'm wondering how all this starts to play out and how he, how, how you predict the president will react in the face of these new realities. If I may add one other data, two other data points to your excellent summary, David. Uh, one is Lindsey Graham went to Ankara to, to socialize and have talks with President Erdogan. And I think uh, coming on the heels of the Turkish president being unwilling to see John Bolton, that that President Trump sent Lindsey Graham to have the conversation that Bolton couldn't have, which suggests to me that that Lindsey Graham is busy making compromises that will not result, as John Bolton said they would, in the U.S. remaining in Syria until the last Iranian boot is out of Syria. Uh, the second thing, and and that I think is really consequential, is that there have been two attacks on Americans in Syria. One, a joint USYPG patrol, and the other, a, a Navy contractor, Navy interpreter, and two service members. Uh, killed when they were stopped in a coffee shop. And so you, the president set the standard of saying ISIS has been defeated. That's palpably not true if people are being killed. And, and it's palpably especially not true if American military folks in Syria are being targeted. And so that, too, increases the pressure on the president for the recklessness that he has been engaged in with President Erdogan. He clearly wants nothing to do with this, wants to get out of there. The problem is that, as the military has long been fond of saying, the enemy gets a vote. Yeah. Um, well, I'm, I'm going to go around and talk about three different things, and then we can come back and summarize around each of them. But, uh, Ed, you know, if the president's looking for an international victory in the near term, Possibly the lowest hanging fruit. Well, we talked in the last episode about a North Korea summit. Uh, that's got some complexities, might be at the end of February. A couple weeks after that, in March, uh, you've got some deadlines looming that may offer the opportunity for a trade deal with the Chinese. Now, in classic 2019 fashion, we learned uh, on the day of this recording that the Chinese, in the midst of these negotiations, um, have granted five more trademarks to Ivanka Trump. Isn't that incredibly <laughs> generous of them? Uh, but it, it also is a kind of a sign uh, to me that, you know, they're willing to take a deal if it's a good deal. Uh, and, you know, that's, that's a place where Trump could have a victory simply by um, not having a trade crisis and getting a few minor concessions and so on. What do you think? Yes, uh, I mean, I, I question how big a victory that would be and, and how much that would play um, here. I mean, I guess, you know, all, all it means is that he's not going to escalate tariffs. 
um, and China might agree to buy some more soybeans, um, and there might be, you know, some notional target it agrees to reduce the bilateral trade deficit, which incidentally last year, 2018, was the highest in history. Um, so, um, I, you know, I don't know how much juice Trump will get from that. I share your, you know, um, expectation that it will probably happen. And I think one of the reasons it'll probably happen is is precisely because of the first uh, foreign policy item you mentioned, the um, coming summit with, second summit um, with Kim Jong-un. And, uh, you know, Kim Jong-un has recently made his fourth visit to Beijing. He keeps reminding Trump he has other options. He doesn't need to um, continue to pretend to be doing a deal with the United States. He could actually, um, he could actually rely ent- uh, entirely on on um, Uncle Uncle Xi. Um, so yes, may, may, maybe maybe a victory of sorts there. I, I mean, I think if if I were to sort of prognosticate on a grander level, um, the kind of foreign policy gesture that. Um, you know, really would polarize America. And Trump is after polarization. That's the only game he can play. And it's the only game he's ever won um, is the um, withdrawal from NATO. Uh, I mean, I still think it's unlikely, but I think the temptation, um, Trump's temptation to make a dramatic gesture like that is going to rise as his prospect, as 2020 approaches and his prospects you know, begin to darken further. It's something he's always believed. It's one of these issues, like pulling out of Syria, where he's continually been pushed back and headed off um, and delayed and stalled by advisors, um, but which he keeps coming back to nonetheless. And I think in the same way he's come back to, right, we're just getting every every American out of out of Syria. Um, he, he's going to keep coming back to, why are we a member of NATO anyway? Mm-hmm. Well, if I may, without detracting at all from Ed's outstanding points just made, David, <laughs> may I make a request <laughs> that we that we get a mug that with the caption, if I may prognosticate at a grander level. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, that's worthy of Woody Allen. <laughs> Uh, yes, I will get right. We'll get conceptualization here. Yes, I'm not even sure what that means, but I want one. No, that's a Woody Allen quote. I, I'm saying it's worthy of Woody Allen. He said in one of his movies, "Can I interject a conceptualization here?" <laughs> um, okay, well, I, th- I think we're making a lot of progress, Joe. There's one other topic I'd like to talk about in terms of these potential distractions, and clearly, we, and we mentioned a couple now: NATO and China, and and uh, Syria, I'm, I'm going to give you a choice of one or two here. One is, of course, the ever uh, 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 popular uh, idea of, of going to war with Iran, mm-hmm. um, which the you know people like John Bolton, uh, you know, have as uh, you know th- their their Christmas list for Santa. I suspect was very short, and this was the only item on it. Um, uh, but then there are other things that I, we've seen the president do even in the past couple of weeks, like talking about spending new amounts of money on space defense and, you know, kind of crazy projects that um, sound quite grand and uh, 
and are actually kind of demented on some level. So mm-hmm. maybe you want to talk about either of those. Real quick, we can dismiss the missile defense review, which came out last week. Uh, it, for, for people like Corey or me or maybe Ed, who actually have read the report, it's not an unreasonable report. It's like more of the same. Uh, it, it, but but it, it's pro- programmatic suggestions are actually fairly modest. On the other hand, President Trump's speech was was off the rails. He was promising to a system that would be able to shoot down any missile anywhere at any time. Complete coverage of cruise missiles and hypervelocity missiles and good old ICBMs. It's it's an impossible dream, and it was just talk. It was just. Talk. By the way, when we're talking about hypervelocity missiles, that can include the great Russian project that Vladimir Putin was running videos of. And then he started like throwing the people involved with it in jail or, or because none of it was actually happening. Right. Well, (laughs) a lot of the systems. So it was a year ago, uh, pretty much this month that he unveiled these five new programs, including a hypervelocity glide vehicle and a nuclear powered long range cruise missiles, most of which probably won't work. But he said he was doing it because of U.S. missile defense plans. Well, Trump just threw gasoline on on an already fiery nuclear arms race by saying, no, now we're really going to do missile defense. But I don't think any of that is actually going to happen. We have a long history of exaggerated threats and, and, and grandiose plans, followed by pretty mundane deployments. But so, but the real action is in Iran, and that's the one that worries me the most. And it's picking up a little on what Corey said. People are increasingly worried about the storm clouds, as Richard, Richard Haas, a Council of Foreign Relations president, tweeted out today. Storm clouds, are, are, no, this week rather, are fast gathering. And what he means is that Israel is stepping up its attacks on Iranian targets in Syria. At the beginning of this week on Monday, they, they bragged about hitting a new round of Iranian targets. Unlike in, in Northeast Asia, where n- none of our allies want us to go to war with North Korea, in the Middle East, some of our allies want us to go to war with Iran. And, and it's, Israel is clearly pressing this. Saudi Arabia is clearly pressing this with its war in Yemen. Some people like Mike Pompeo and John Bolton think this is what we have to do, that we should be hitting Iranian targets in Syria. So I, I am I am very afraid. And, and this, of course, in terms of Trump's political futures, this is the grand distraction. Action, a war. What I need is to a war to make me look tough and to rally, however unrealistic that is, the nation around me. So that's the the, new, the crisis in the world that I worry about the most. Well, Corey, there are a bunch of choices um, uh, that are you know <laughs> uh, off, offered offered up to you there uh, for things that Trump could do if everything grinds to a halt. Uh, in the United States, um, have we missed anything? Uh, well, you know, when the gods want to toy with us, they remind us how little imagination we have for disaster. So, so yeah, of course we miss stuff. Um, I'm still the one I am most worried about continues to be Trump not getting any progress on denuclearization with North Korea. And in order to show that he has a deal uh, unilaterally withdrawing U.S. troops from South Korea. And that's the one I am most worried about. But I agree that Ed's point that he's just going to keep coming back to the why are we in NATO. And that not only discourages our allies, but it incentivizes challenges to see whether 
you know, will come to their defense. So it's making the international order a lot more brittle uh, that he's doing this kind of stuff. I am actually not convinced, though, that foreign policy is going to be the place where Trump, where President Trump uh, exercises these distractions. I think he he's perfectly comfortable using executive orders as the way to distract. Um, you know, this terrible habit of the chief executive signing executive orders when they can't when they aren't good enough at their jobs to get Congress to legislate things is a really unhealthy trend in American democracy. And that's what makes me think Trump will go there. Um, well, that, unhealthy trends in American democracy are kind of his thing. Yeah, that's that's what he does. That's his brand. Um, by the way, I know we're approaching the uh, the time that you have to leave because you've got to go off to some gala London ball with Costumes by Cecil Beaton and that kind of thing. That's the way I'm imagining. I thank you so much for adding a patina of glamour to my hardworking everyday life, David. Well, I'm imagining your hat has a four foot brim on it, you know. And 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 as in real life, that you look exactly like Audrey Hepburn as you head off into that room. Oh, thank you so very much. That is just what I needed. I don't deserve it, but I'm grateful for it, my friend. Well, we'll 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 talk to you next week. I'm gonna finish up here with Ed and with Joe. Um, but as we as, but, but enjoy enjoy the canapes. Um, Thank you. Um, but as as we sort of look off at this, Ed, what is your um, uh, sense, um, of, you know, ab- about these things, or is it that actually nothing's going to work, and that what we're really headed for is a period where we look back on these frigid, cold, dark days and think of them as, you know, the good old days? No, I, do, I don't think it's that bleak. Uh, I mean, my, my, my concern about um, the dangers or the limitations rather facing, you know, uh, the next president, assuming it's not Trump, um, uh, is that we're demographically, you know, at the stage nationally in the United States where California was in the early 1990s. Um, namely, we can see uh, a majority-minority demography beckoning sometime in the next generation. But uh, until that point, um, the um, nature of politics means we live in a vetocracy. And that means that um, if the Republicans choose not to reform, not to change, to continue down this sort of nihilistic path of blocking everything and uh, making sure the system fails when um, they're not in control and then making it fail in other ways when they are, um, then we we have potentially got 20 years um, where Democratic presidents are going to be highly tempted to use executive orders because they're not going to get Congress to pass stuff. And that that will be um, a degeneration in the political system and and it will it, it will um, undermine what normal civic democratic politics should be even further than it has been uh, um that's that's my my greater concern look there's only a couple minutes left here and i do want to uh, put a button on this by changing to the ultimate subject for a foreign policy national security conversation <laughs> to turn to 
on this week. Uh, and I would like to turn to Joe and then to Ed. And I would like to ask each of you how grateful you are that you are not speaking of frozen wastelands in the frozen, irrelevant wastelands of Davos, Switzerland right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, unlike the two of you, perhaps I've never had the privilege to go there, um, at, and so. I, but I found that I've lost my interest in ever going there, um, and, and I sort of—I I don't mean to be just a, sort of an anti-elitist, but uh, I'm, I'm no longer convinced that that those kinds of grand, big CEO uh, conferences. Uh, actually accomplish very much at all. So um, I'm happy to be here in the United States and not in beautiful Switzerland. Oh my God, not accomplish anything at all. First of all, the, that conference is about as relevant as, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, a, a flip phone. It, I mean, it, it goes, you know, maybe Studio 54. It hasn't been relevant in a long, long time. Nothing is achieved there. As uh, Steve Case once said to me, the guy who founded AOL, you always feel like there's something going on someplace there, but you're not where it's happening. Mm -hmm. um, Ed, do you have a, a point of view on this subject? I've, I've long thought that uh, the, there's an inverse ratio between the breadth of networking opportunities and the level of insights generated. Uh, and I think that, you know, it's clearly just a grand networking fest uh, disguised as an insightful, um, predictive, um, globally um, savvy um, look into the future. And it's just got everything wrong year after year. One of the most interesting exercises I did for my last book was I looked over Davos's, the World Economic Forum's reports for the previous 12, 15 years um, to show what they'd predicted for the next year and then what actually happened. And they always summarize the previous year's conventional wisdom and anticipate nothing. As, as a journalist, it's the last place you should be. Yeah, it's true. But a lot of them go there because people listen to them and they think it makes them important. I remember Fred Bergston being interviewed, a Washington think tank type, being interviewed by the Wall Street Journal and saying, you know, he was asked, what did you learn at Davos? And he said, I don't come to Davos to learn. I come to give ideas. God, that's beautiful. And it was like, oh, for fuck's sake. But you never met so many pompous, self-absorbed <laughs> people. By the way, 80% of whom are men. They never can get above about 16% being women, most of whom are not from the populations that represent the majority of the world's population. But it struck me today that people are actually going there, uh, despite the fact that Trump and so forth are not able to go and play there. Um, because as happens every year, they released a report in which it was said, uh, and I think it's Oxfam who does this, that there are 26 families, 26 people in the world who have net worth that's equivalent to that of the bottom half of the world's population, three and a half billion people. And, you know, you think about this and then you think about these elitist confabs and, you know, I, I, I immediately sort of rediscover the kind of, you know, torch and pitchfork bearing um, uh, uh, revolutionary in myself. And, and you know, I, I would say eat the rich, except I can't imagine anything more nauseating. Um, but it, it, we are really at a place where the world has broken down profoundly that, that 26 people could have the same wealth as the bottom three and a half billion. That's a 
a moral failing. That's not the way society should work. Uh, I did a little calculation, and if you if you had spent a hundred thousand dollars a day every day for your life, that would come out to about two point three billion dollars. Which means that anything you have above two point three billion dollars is excess to spending a hundred thousand dollars a day for the rest of your life. Which seems to me unnecessary. But perhaps, Joe, you have another view. <laughs> no, no, I don't. I, and this is actually picking up on a theme we had earlier in the podcast, one of the more optimistic uh, trends we're seeing in the country, in the country and the Congress is moving away from this, of moving to a, a, a more democratic populism in the real good sense, where you're getting representatives who, who in the Congress who represent more of what they, we've always said they should be representing, the average person, and less and less reliance and less and less uh, confidence that that these mega billionaires, these titans of industry, uh, actually have the answers or can guide us um, uh, in a in a government policy. Uh, so I'm I'm glad to hear you and Ed both talk this way about Davos. It's I think it's an encouraging sign. Ed, Ed is I also refer to him as the new Marx because he is leading the transformation. Um, <laughs> Uh, uh, away from this, despite his ties to the Wall Streeters, uh, and, the, and the and the I, villa that he lives in, yeah. I, I'm giving my estate away for free um, to 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 the um, to the peasants who live nearby. That is so. You are you are you're you're a gentleman, and that I think is uh, a great tradition. You know what I mean? And uh, I hope that others of your class follow through with this. Yeah, and unlike unlike um, fellow members of my class um, in Davos, I will be holding seminars on my just given away estate about inequality, not about poverty, because Davos only ever addresses poverty. It never addresses inequality. And the same incidentally goes for TED Talks. Poverty is a safe subject, inequality is not. And speaking of it, speaking of inequality, I just want to thank you, David, um, for the way, for the equality and the balance that you bring to these podcasts. This is one of the few where men have outnumbered uh, women's voices, and here we have three. It's quite unusual to be speaking. And so I want to thank the the women who couldn't make it for this podcast, Rosa and Emily and others, for creating a space for me to join you. And I want you to know I'm on the bench anytime you need me. Well, yeah, we, as you know, (laughs) seek at all times to have a gender balance. Um, And when we fail, we turn to you, Joe. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That... No, uh, we always have gender balance, and we would have actually had. You know, Katie Fang was supposed to participate in this week's podcast, and uh, at the last minute, literally before we came on, she had a family health emergency. We hope that the member of her family who went through this is doing better. We wish her well, and she will join us next week to discuss all the legal shenanigans that are going on. Uh, and we have a lot of other interesting folks coming up in podcasts ahead of us and as our other podcast, Washington for uh, Beautiful People, which is pulling together some of the most influential people on the left coast and uh, National Security Journal or National Security Magazine, where we're really talking to some of the leaders from the military, national security uh, community, as well as candidates for president. We hope to get through um, all of those over the course of 2019. Um as well as the other things that you find at deepstateradionetwork.com. Please, please 
you, you've been ignoring me on this. Yeah. Go there, <laughs> sign up, become a member, make a small contribution. This way we can have the limousine that Joe requires to take him to our studio. Um, uh, and where you're not in our studio right now because we don't have that limo, Joe. We, we had to have you Skype in. And I refuse to come without it. And yeah, I want my exactly. lifetime supply of mugs. Yeah, no, you'll have a lifetime supply of mugs. Ed has a mug room, by the way, in a stately, <laughs> loose manner. Just that, next to the deer heads, in fact. Yeah, I, yeah, I love those. You you strangled each one of those deers by yourself, didn't you? You. I had uh, some assistance, but yes. Yeah, yeah, no, I I love that. You're very Don Junior like, uh, in your hatred for living things, uh, like your like your cats. Um, anyway. Um, okay, I apologize for this 10 minutes of this podcast <laughs> where there were no women on the air. We will make up for that very soon with an all-women podcast so we maintain our average. Uh, but I thank Ed, and I thank Joe, and I thank Corey, despite the fact that she left early for her soiree. And uh, I encourage all of you to come back and join us again real soon. Bye-bye. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.